good afternoon and thank you all for joining us today. I'm Amanda Story from Minter Ellison and I'll provide a very brief partner's welcome to Dr. Cathy Foley before handing over to today's host, Professor Helen Sullivan. And first, I would like to make an acknowledgement of country. In the spirit of rec reconciliation, IPA ACT acknowledges the traditional custodians of the country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, Islander peoples here today. I've been invited by ACT to provide a formal welcome to Dr Foley on behalf of Minter Ellison. Minter Ellison are long-time sponsors of IPA ACT and, and I'm particularly proud of our role in supporting the Helen Williams oration. Over a number of years now, we've welcomed speakers at the oration uh, and it's our honour to recognise the important career of Helen Williams and to champion what this career has represented for so many people, being the progress of women in leadership. I'd like to introduce today's host, Professor Helen Sullivan, a, a perfect host for today's event. Helen is a political sociologist and public policy scholar. Educated in humanities and social sciences, she holds a degree in modern history and political science, women's study and public policy. She serves as Dean of the College of Asia and the Pacific at the Australian National University. Helen's career is defined by a long-term commitment to bridging the gap between policy and research. In 2013, Helen established the Melbourne School of Government, a multidisciplinary school that broke new ground through its integration of, of engagement and impact with research and teaching. Between 2017 and 2021, Helen was director at the Crawford School, the ANU, the Asia Pacific's leading public policy school. Helen's research has won Best Paper Publication Awards from global academic societies, including the Public Management Research Association and the International Research Society for Public Management. In 2002, Helen was awarded a fellowship in the Higher Education Academy in recognition for her teaching quality and innovation. And in 2016, she was made a National Fellow at the Institute of Public Administration Australia in recognition for her significant contribution to public policy and administration. In 2020-21, she serves as the elected president of the Australian Political Studies Association. So thank you very much, Helen, for hosting today's event. And it's with great pleasure that I pass over to you. Thank you so much, uh, Amanda, for that uh, warm and, and generous welcome. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here uh, at IPA ACT's 2021 Helen Williams oration with the Australian Chief Scientist, Dr. Cathy Foley. And I'd also like to acknowledge and extend my respects to the traditional custodians of the land on which we are meeting today. I'm here on Ngunnawal and Ngambri lands. The IPA ACT oration was established in 1953, or rather IPA ACT was established in 1953, as a professional body focused on the promotion of excellence and professionalism in public administration. Each branch of IPA hosts an annual oration to honour those who have made a significant contribution to public administration in Australia. The annual IPA ACT oration is held in recognition of Helen Williams AC. Helen is known to many across the public service perhaps most notably as the first woman in the Australian Public Service to be appointed a Secretary of an Australian Government Department. Helen was appointed as Secretary of the Department of Education in 1985, 
and went on to be the secretary of several other departments, including the Department of Tourism, the Department of Immigration and Multicultural Affairs, the Department of Communication, Information Technology and the Arts, and the Department of Human Services. She was also the Australian Public Service Commissioner between her time as Secretary of Immigration and Communication. Helen retired from the public service in 2009, but remains passionate about public administration and those who work in our great profession. The trailblazer for many of us. So IPA ACT was very pleased Helen accepted our proposal to host the inaugural Helen Williams oration in 2018. That year, the oration was delivered by Anne Sherry, then Executive Chairman of Carnival Australia. In 2019, it was delivered by Dr. Megan Clark, Head of the Australian Space Agency. And in 2020, it was delivered by Christine Morgan, the CEO of the National Mental Health Commission. In that spirit, I would like to extend a very warm welcome to Helen Williams, who is watching today from home. IPA ACT is always proud to host this event in your honour, and we are particularly pleased you are able to make it today. And it's my very happy task now to acknowledge the 2021 presenter of the Helen Williams oration, Dr. Cathy Foley, the Chief Scientist of Australia. Dr. Foley, uh, AOPSM, commenced as Australia's ninth Chief Scientist in January 2021 after an extensive career at Australia's National Science Agency, the CSRO, just up the road from the ANU, in fact. Dr. Foley is an internationally recognised physicist with major research achievements in superconductors and sensors, which led to the development of the LANTEM sensor system for locating valuable deposits of minerals deep underground, resulting in discoveries and delineation of minerals worth more than $6 billion. Dr. Foley's scientific excellence and influential leadership have been recognised with numerous awards and fellowships, including election to the Australian Academy of Science in 2020, along with an Order of Australia for Service to Research Science and to the Advancement of Women in Physics. She's also a Fellow of the Australian Academy of Technological Science and Engineering and an Honorary Fellow of the Australian Institute of Physics. Dr Foley is an inspiration to women in STEM across the globe and is committed to improving gender equality and diversity in the science sector to embrace the full human potential of all. And I know from personal experience that uh, Dr. Foley's reputation is uh, very highly regarded at the ANU and uh, she is seen as a, a really important role model for our um, up and coming uh, female scientists. So welcome to you, Dr. Foley, and over to you for the keynote. Oh, thank you, Helen. That was a really lovely introduction and hello, everyone. I'm speaking on the traditional lands of the Camaragal people up in northern part of Sydney near the Karingai National Park. And I want to pay my respects to them and the traditional custodians of other lands where audience members are based. I acknowledge the elders who are caring for those lands and I pay my respects to the old ones who've come before and the young ones who will follow. I also want to recognise the people working from home for the past 18 months. I know it's enormously difficult for families, but not only for families. I'm concerned about the impact on people living alone and the lasting effects on young people. Many Australians are experiencing very tough times, and I know that as we focus on their pandemic recovery, this is top of mind for governments, business owners and workplace managers alike. As Helen mentioned, I understand that Helen Williams has joined us. So hi, Helen. It's great that you're here. I appreciate it enormously. 
and your achievements have brought us together today, and I am honoured that you are here. When Helen made history in 1985, becoming the first female secretary of a government, uh, Commonwealth government department at the age of just 39, that was the same year I joined CSIRO as a research fellow. I can still remember that first day, driving up to the gate and thinking, this could be fun for three years. Little did I know that I would be there for 36. I'll say that at the outset, that throughout my research and working career, I have never wanted my gender to be an issue. My office reached out to Helen Williams as I was preparing to speak with you today, and she made a similar observation. She said she always wanted to be treated as a person first. Me too. As I focused on getting on with the job of being a scientist, I wanted to make sure that gender, though, was not, or found that gender was not easily ignored. I remember trying to fit in when I studied physics at university and just be one of the boys in what was a pretty male-dominated environment. So when I got that first position at the CSIRO, I decided to wear a dress on my first day. It was not something I had ever done in the lab when I was at university, but I soon found that I was the only female research scientist in the applied physics lab and I reverted quickly to wearing trousers to fit in. I had, I've had enormous support and opportunities in my career, but it is undeniable that challenges and negotiations related to being a woman have always been part of it. Now I am, as Australia's chief scientist, the most senior science and technology advisor in the country, and yet here I am talking about the challenges facing women in the workplace. I might have wished that gender was not an issue, but I acknowledge that it is. I know also that I am a role model, whether I like it or not. And just like all of the workplace leaders in the audience here today, our responsibility is to influence for change. I welcome this opportunity today to talk about these issues, and I thank IPA for providing this. But before I go into detail, I want to note that while many of my messages are about women, many are not specific to women. As Australia's chief scientist, I see myself as a role model for all young people who might not realize that they can aspire to a career in science. I did it. I want all young people, however they identify their gender, whatever their background, to know they can too. But I'll say a little more about that later. First, I want to zero in on some of the points where we need to focus our attention. For me, it starts at the beginning with encouraging girls into STEM subjects and young women into STEM careers. The latest STEM equity monitor shows that more than a third of men in tertiary education are studying STEM qualifications, areas related to maths or science or engineering, and that's excluding health. But for women, the figure is only 9%. That is, more than 90% of women at university or TAFE are studying for qualifications not related to STEM. When your country is building its future on high-tech STEM-related industries, that's a problem. We need more women in engineering and also in mathematics, IT, and the physical sciences. 
Where women are entering the STEM fields is overwhelmingly in the caring professions such as medical, environmental and veterinary science. And that's great, and I certainly don't want to discourage it. I know they are choosing careers where they feel they can make a difference, but I want them to know that they can absolutely make a difference working in the physical sciences, tackling complex issues such as climate change, energy and water. The obvious question is, how do we bring about change? How do we encourage more girls to study STEM at school and aspire to careers in the fields of maths and science? I want to acknowledge the work of our Women in STEM Ambassador, Professor Lisa Harvey-Smith, and others in and outside government championing this agenda, seeking out the data that we still don't have, and measuring the impact of initiatives underway. One of the solutions is to improve visibility of science careers. So you can see yourself in a career when it makes sense to you if you study science such as physics and chemistry, just as you can say with medicine or law. Students, teachers and parents need to be able to see the end goal and know what it looks like to have a job in STEM. Role models are also incredibly important. I'm constantly hearing from scientists and researchers about the people who influenced them when they were younger. I know I wouldn't have ended up in science research without role models and encouragement from inspiring teachers and lecturers. Once young women enter STEM and research careers, the next problem is keeping them there and helping them progress upwards. I have been talking with many early and mid-career researchers this year and the issues they raise are consistent and unfortunately concerning. Lack of support for flexible and part-time work, lack of support for non-linear career paths, the unhelpful alignment between the timing of university careers and the age when women have children, the way success is measured, which reflects an outmoded system of publication numbers and the like. It is troubling to hear women saying that going part-time at work damage their careers. And on the other side of the coin, I've heard from women who were, felt judged for going back to work too soon. This feeling of being judged about your parenting decisions is not confined to the research sector. Helen Williams also speaks about the negative response when she took maternity leave in 1987. Because of her pioneering role as the first female secretary, she was seen as letting the side down, ruining the cause. It's just so disappointing to be still hearing similar messages from women in their 30s now, 35 years later. When Helen returned to work, she found her position had been disestablished in a reorganisation of departments. And so she was suddenly an associate secretary. Not that that held her back for long. As you heard, she had a stellar and highly successful career heading a number of departments but it's salutary. Helen talks about the need to tackle those structural issues so that if you take time off or take a period of part-time work, your career doesn't stall. You can return and still progress. I endorse this wholeheartedly, and I would encourage you all to take this message to heart as you consider the role of women in their 30s. We must also remember that our caregiving structures are in transition. There are so many parenting combinations and our career expectations have to change for everyone, including men. One solution I found interesting 
in the research sector is at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute in Melbourne. They are one of the leading research institutions in the country and have been very proactive on the issues of equity with plenty of lateral thinking. They have a range of measures around promotions and career breaks to ensure women's careers stay on track. They have also shaken up the usual system of appointments. Instead of the divide between the three-year postdocs and permanent positions, all of those early appointments are for five years, not the usual three. That means everyone is on the same footing. They have a range of measures around promotions and career breaks to ensure women's careers stay on track, including building a childcare centre adjacent to their laboratories. They have also shaken up the usual system of appointments. Instead of the usual divide between short-term postdocs and tenured academics, everyone is on a contract in those first years. These are just some ideas. We need others. We need different ways of measuring success in the research system that aren't based on one kind of career path followed by a narrow population. We need different expectations in the wider work, workplace. Now, I've spoken so far about those early years and ensuring careers don't get stuck in quicksand once children come along. Now I want to shift the focus of my comments to the other end of the age spectrum because we also need to keep women in the workforce through their 50s and 60s. There are a lot of issues in the mix for older workers. The population is aging and we can no longer afford to have people retiring at 55 or 60. Australians need to work longer. And this is a good thing. In my experience, this is when I have seen women's careers accelerate. This allows us to expand that cohort of senior female role models and leaders. I also think that if we look for ways to address our skills shortage, we should remember that older workers with STEM skills are a valuable pool that we can draw from. This is especially pertinent at the moment, given the restrictions on overseas arrivals, but there are barriers. One of these is age discrimination. And I know the Age Discrimination Commissioner has been doing some important work in this space. And for women, there is an added layer, and this is the issue of menopause. Yes, you heard me right. I want to talk a bit about that today because the system doesn't always support this phase of women's lives. Unless we find ways to better support women during menopause, we risk losing the skills and leadership of women in their 40s and 50s. Menopause is not discussed enough. I know I wouldn't have felt comfortable talking publicly about it when I went through the experience myself quite some years ago. It's not as though it's a small group. Half the population goes through menopause and it's not a moment in time. It's a process that takes some years. But there is surprisingly little research relating to the impact of menopause on women's careers in Australia, which probably reflects the fact that has not had enough focus or visibility. In the UK, there is a strong focus. The British Parliament started an inquiry this year, noting that more than 1 million women in the UK have left their jobs because of symptoms. This is just at the point when their career, in their careers when they should be in senior positions, the trailblazers, the role models for younger people. A growing number of women in the UK are launching employment discrimination cases as a result of menopause. 
and the British Medical Association reports that female doctors are reluctant to speak about their own experiences for fear of damaging careers, being ridiculed, or making things worse in the male-dominated workplaces. Women often avoid uh, speaking to managers about their symptoms because managers are men or they're younger. We can be sure these same things are happening in Australia and women are leaving work because of it. I don't know to what extent, but I do know that we have to do everything we can to keep women supported and productive at work through their 50s and into their 60s. This means being aware of the challenges that can arise from menopause and considering ways to ameliorate them. This is a matter of equity. We all know about the superannuation disparity when women have interrupted careers or leave work earlier. There's also a question of ensuring that we have that pool of senior female role models and leaders. And it's about our nation's future and our nation's prosperity. The last thing we want to do is to make skilled researchers, scientists and engineers feel the workplace has no place for them in those final decades of their careers. Australia has lost a stream of skilled migration as a result of COVID. It takes time to get a pipeline of skilled workers in new industries through the education system, trained up and ready. The older workforce provides one of the solutions we and we should be using it. And on this note, I was really pleased to see the launch of the STEM Returners Program in Australia. This is about encouraging highly skilled people with STEM backgrounds back into the workforce after a career break and linking them with jobs as well as mentoring through Engineers Australia. It starts with 12 weeks, then if the fit is right, the jobs can become permanent. This looks like an excellent program for both sides of the equation, providing a pathway back into the workforce for skilled workers and a talent pool for industry sectors facing skills shortages. Now, I've talked a lot so far about the problems, you know, those patches of quicksand where careers get really stuck. It's easy to see the, those negatives given what sometimes feels like a glacial pace of change. And the discussions that we're having in Australia at the moment are a reflection of that. And then we see the stories and pictures from Afghanistan when women risk their lives just to speak out or argue for an education or even the right to leave their homes alone. It can feel like progress is just far too slow. But when I cast my mind back to when I was a child in the 1960s and realise how far we have come, at least here in Australia, this is a good thing. When my mother had children, she had to leave her job. That was the rule when she worked at the New South Wales Railways. Helen Williams recalled being asked to play mother when the tea trolley arrived during a treasury gathering in the 1970s. When she was promoted into the SES in 1979, there was resistance. After her appointment as Education Secretary, it was 17 years, that's right, 17 years before another woman came to head a department. But the landscape changed during her career, as it did for me, and it is no longer unusual to have a female secretary. Most recently, Catherine Jones has just taken up her appointment as the first female secretary of Attorney General's Department in its 120-year history. Now, that's a, lot, a milestone. Women are also making their mark in science. Anyone who saw the spontaneous standing ovation at Wimbledon for the scientists behind the vaccine development probably shares my feeling 
that this was quite an emotional moment. It was important recognition of the work of Dame Sarah Gilbert, but also all the researchers and scientists who have played a key role in the pandemic response. It was a real demonstration of public trust in science, and it, it bodes well. I'm not going to measure progress by Barbie characters, but I couldn't help but smile when I saw that Barbie, yes, even Barbie, now has a new series of female professors and doctors on the front line of the COVID pandemic. And there's an Australian doctor in the group, a doll based on Bendigo GP Kirby White. She's a GP who raised money to make reusable gowns for doctors when supplies ran low last year. Now, I know it's Barbie with all the Barbie baggage, but with our understanding that role modelling is so important, I welcome this. I referred earlier to the underrepresentation of women studying STEM subjects in the physical sciences, but despite the low numbers, women are making their mark in some of the subjects that have been considered male bastions. In 2020, women won the Nobel Prizes in both physics and chemistry. In Australia, we have women heading the Australian Research Council and the National Health and Medical Research Council, our two main research funding bodies. The new CSIRO chief scientist is a woman. The chief defence scientist is a woman. So, yes, change is slow, but there is momentum. Having women in these senior roles is normalising. One of the challenges female leaders face is the feeling that perhaps they shouldn't really be there, a sort of kind of uh, imposter syndrome. But it is time to take imposter syndrome off the list of things to worry about. It is time for us to stand confidently and lead by example to inspire and advance the careers of women who will come behind us. I started by talking about my identity as a scientist first. This is the lens through which I view my leadership role and through which I can encourage new ways of thinking. Navigating these unprecedented times has seen the elevation of science in the public sphere. It's great that we scientists are being called on to help address some of Australia's greatest challenges and that the role of scientists is being recognised in our future prosperity as we look to accelerate new low emissions industries, address climate change, launch a space industry, boost medical manufacturing, embrace an incredible, the incredible new digital skills and, of course, quantum technologies. But science alone cannot solve the challenges. We need what I call science plus. Solutions to the challenges we face need science plus engineering, science plus design, a business case, the right regulation and social license. Bringing together all of these pieces of the puzzle is the way to achieve real world impact. This is about different disciplines, but it's also about different ways of thinking. We need engineers, experts in business, marketing and communications experts, ethicists and people with the capacity to think in nuanced ways about safety and community acceptance. This is the thought I want to leave with you today. I strongly believe that we won't achieve what we need to as a nation unless we take that diversity message to heart. It is easy to fall into the fallacy of the average the assumption that by catering for the average, society is doing its job. It's like imagining that the bell of the bell curve 
is the only game and forgetting that five out of every 100 people are not part of that great bulk in the middle. They fit into the tails at the ends of the bell curve for any given parameter. The thing to remember is that these five in 100 are still part of the normal distribution. Science is more than eureka moments. It's about insight. It's about striving for excellence. We have breakthroughs when we look for new ways to apply our knowledge, for new ways of thinking about complex problems, when we take risks, and when we use all our human potential in everything we do. Recognising and embracing difference is how we add depth and richness to our decision-making. So my approach is science plus. I ask you as leaders to think about how you will broaden your approach to unlock the full human potential in your sectors. As we navigate the new normal of our working environment, how will you shape it for the better? When you're thinking about issues that impact specific groups, how will you involve the whole workforce in the solution? Parental leave, for example, is not only an issue for women. Likewise, part-time work and how that impacts advancement is not only an issue for women. It might disproportionately impact women, but colleagues and supervisors all need to share in the solution. The same applies to menopause and to older workers more broadly. So across the public service, you are the facilitators of change. Where you have a seat at the table, use it to invite others in. Thanks very much. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Foley. Um, there was so much in there, uh, in that wonderful oration. And uh, I have to say personally, I'm delighted that you've picked up on the issue of menopause. This is something that uh, uh, many of us, uh, as you indicated, um, experience. And it's certainly something that that I've been uh, um, as uh, candid as I can be with my colleagues about. And um, I think that that being straightforward about it is is really really important so thank you for that uh, along with everything else in that wonderful oration we now have some questions um submitted by the audience um mm -hmm. these will be we streamed and then um once the the question's been asked we'll go back to you for a response hi my name is katrina baxendale and i'm an acting director at the department of agriculture water and the environment dr foley Initial studies and statistics are showing that during the pandemic, more women are taking on homeschooling responsibilities than men. This often has a negative impact on their productivity at work. Do you think that this has or will have an effect on the progression of women's careers? So that's a great question and it's um, a really important one to ask. And I think for all of us who are on, um, you know, on the call today, it's actually up to us to make sure it doesn't happen. Um, I think the pandemic has taken its toll on everyone's ability at work. And uh, we do know that uh, women, and there's evidence to say, have taken the lion's share of domestic childcare. But I think we have to think about, um, you know, how we can make sure that we don't make assumptions about our women's careers, that we don't... Um, answer for them, uh, thinking that they've got something that uh, is stopping them from taking up an opportunity, that we actually allow, um, you know, particularly the chance to act and step up when uh, often you think they might have too much on their hands. Uh, if the opportunity is there, actually ask them. 
Uh, I think the other one is also um, making sure that we understand how we measure success. As I mentioned, this is an area that I think really needs urgent attention. It's something which I understand is uh, pervasive across a whole lot of areas, but in the research sector in particular, what we're seeing is um, a very narrow idea of what does good look like, which has been pretty much based on, you know, a construct of probably men working and often from an Anglo background. And that is fine for the past, but we've now got such a broader range of people working uh, that it doesn't necessarily mean that we're able to embrace that full human potential and measure it in a way and and um, and uh, applaud it and to um, and to celebrate you know the successes that are there, but they're often hidden. You know, quite often it's volume rather than quality or um, uh, ex you know, sort of a particular type of experience that doesn't take into account other experiences that are equal and, and valid and, and just as effective. So I think in many ways, um, if we're able to manage that, um, a rethink of uh, the, I guess, structure on uh, success parameters or a criteria for how we look at what does good look like, that on all aspects, I think we'll see a big change there. Thanks so much. Um, I'm going to read the, the second question that, that we have, which is deals with uh, something that you, you've uh, uh, addressed in part in the oration. That's to do with working mothers' career trajectories and um, what risk uh, there is to those, given that it's women who tend to drop out of the workforce when childcare becomes unaffordable. Yeah, so that's... Um... That, that's that's a real issue. It's also about um, taking time off and working part-time. Um, and also, actually, at the other end, it reflects on uh, uh, par uh, parents or, or grandparents being seen to uh, step in to take on childcaring as well, which means that they're out of the workforce too. So it's, uh, nobody wins, does it? But um, I think uh, we have to make sure that we actually embrace the whole um the whole idea of flexibility. I know that uh, if you look at um, places that have, you know, sort of recognised that, you know, those years. I mean, my kids are all in their late twenties and thirties now, and uh, and I know that you know that time when you had to struggle with childcare before and after school care, all that sort of stuff, is just part of your whole career. And I think uh, what we're not doing well is uh, a couple of things. One is making it okay for everyone, all parents, to um, to be able to uh, do what's necessary to juggle. We know it's it's an important part of our humanity that we actually have children and that uh, and that we uh, also work and we work out how to make that all come together. And I think it's that normalising that this is just the way work is. It's not different. It's special. That's how work is. Is not. It's changing and I think it's great to see that happening, but we've got a long way to go. I know in the academic world, we've still got a, um, just hearing from those young women who I spoke to earlier this year, there is such a spectrum and I know we've got that SAGE program underway and we've seen um, research organisations getting their bronze. And that's just the plan. What I want to see is that plan turn into action and that's when we're really going to start seeing something happen. And a really simple thing, which I think Walter and Liza Hall Institute um, did this, was they actually moved um, reference to women. Everything is just uh, staffs for anything to do with uh, policies so that then uh, things to do with uh, parental leave is just about uh, as equal for men as it is for women. And uh, 
Um, and I, I think it's fantastic to see um, uh, men, uh, young men with their young families also willing to step out and uh, be able to take their chance to engage with their kids and take time off work and also go part-time and a whole range of things like that. So I think we're in transition, but we've got to make sure we set up the um, structures around it, that we actually recognise that got to play the long game, that we've got um, the resourcing for success on all these things. Um, and it's not just a problem for a particular subsection, it's actually part of the way work is done. Thank you so much. Uh, we'll go to the, the next question now. Good afternoon, Dr Foley. Justine McNichol from People, Culture and Capability Branch at the Department of Education, Skills and Employment. My question for you today is, what would be your advice to both government policymakers and the public service as responsible for in implementing policies to achieve positive change for older workers? Thank you. Yeah, that's a great question, Justine, and it's not just because I'm getting old too. <laughs> uh, this is something which actually has always interested me, this whole um, end, you know, end of career, and there's a couple of things. I think our systems, are, and I don't have the solutions, these are just uh, uh, things where I, I'm, I think, just beginning to have the discussion and talking about is the first thing. Uh, we have sort of spent a lot of time focusing on early careers and that tricky time of, you know, when you're having um, creating a family and getting your career on track. But at the end of, end of your career, we do get a bit tired, you know, bodies don't work as well as they used to. Um, there's also things like the golden handcuffs, I think, of superannuation so that when you do eventually retire, how do we actually make sure that we're, you know, maximising, I guess, uh, our financial stability because that's really important. And also, as I mentioned before, too, um, you know, there's this growing trend of expectation of granny and grandpa to be part of the childcare plan for families. And um, and I think where you know the the idea of thinking about that and um, putting effort into what does end of career look like, how we actually plan for it, what you know, do we actually have to restructure things in a way that allows us to uh, go you know, into part-time and you know, sort of transition out without it impacting on your super or um, being able to have ways where you can step down or aside to let the next generation come in, particularly when you're in a leadership role, without you actually uh, having to have uh, something which will impact on you financially or you know, whatever it is it takes to make sure your self-esteem and self-worth is because you know, by the end of your careers, you've probably got a lot of your um, identity based on what your job has been. So there's a whole lot of stuff there which is, um, is uh, I think, there for the thinking about and uh, an opportunity for us to really think about uh, what, what, what needs to change. But I think it comes down to flexibility and, work, and recognition that um, at all stages in your life, there's going to be different 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 bits that you have to take into account, and that that model of the way work is done. And I think COVID's sort of woken us up to this: that you can work productively in weird and wonderful circumstances, that you can um, approach your work in a different way, and uh, still be effective and have impact and and deliver on whatever your role is. And I think uh, there's, uh, this is the opening and just the beginning of a new way of thinking about how we can embrace flexibility, 
look at that whole planning from, you know, sort of cradle to grave, I guess, of what does work mean? And uh, think about what we need to change in structures that have been there a long time and have been set up at a time when, I guess, society was different. And think, what do we have to do to re revision our work in Australia? Thank you, and 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 linked to that, but taking you more into the um, the organisation as opposed to the, the the policy settings. Do you have any advice for um, organisations aiming to get the best out of of older workers? Are there things that that you think you've seen that work particularly well, and indeed, are there particular mistakes that we should uh, be trying to avoid? Yeah, that's um, so. There's a couple of things where uh, I think, on average, we do it really badly everywhere. <laughs> Um, uh, no offence for everyone, um, but um, and, and as someone who's been in a leadership role, management role, it's something which really concerned me because um, uh, you uh, you know older workers are also more expensive, and um, and so they, that comes with that. Um, and so I think there's also this idea too of um, those constraints I talked about before. If you look at places, um, you know, the USA actually has a lot more older people working in senior roles or working until much later ages than we have in Australia. Uh, the academic community has a more emeritus role where you're able to engage, do mentoring and leadership that way. Um, uh, when we're looking at the people actually working, particularly looking at that skills gap, uh, being able to move in and out of work, micro-credentialing, setting up ways to be able to bring your skills up to scratch and also I think understanding what the limitations are for it's almost like you sort of hit your career maximum then what does that sort of um, uh, I don't want to say decay but that time of where you're not necessarily at your sharpest is you know what does that look like what are the things we need as from a human health perspective from keeping our brains going so that we you know sort of they keep us um agile as possible. There's a lot of things there which I think are there for us to understand and study and consider. Thank you so much. That's um, that, that, that's really, really helpful. And uh, yes, very, very good to know that, um, uh, you know, we're all doing it badly, but we have opportunities to do it better. That's, that's really great. Um, so, um, with that, I'd like to uh, to draw the session to a close and, and offer um, our thanks to, to you, Dr. Foley, for a, um, a really great, terrific, uh, stimulating, provocative oration um, and for taking questions from the audience and, and sharing your reflections. Um, I'm told that ACT has sent a gift to both you and to Helen Williams to express our gratitude for your contribution. And that's um, just personally for me, I would as I said earlier, um, I think the emphasis that you've placed on older workers and certainly on uh, being um, explicit about what happens in the menopause, how that affects women at work and um, and what we as uh, uh, female leaders can do about that, uh, I think is, is really important and very welcome. Uh, and if you're talking about it, I think that means that uh, many more people are going to feel able to talk about it. Um, and in particular, your focus on what you call science plus, I think is absolutely spot on and is something that we can all take away and think about, you know, what's the what's the plus for all of us in our um, in our workplaces, in our own industries and professions. And um, that, I think, is absolutely the right way to be thinking about the future. 
And of course, none of us know how the future is going to to play out and the the long-term consequences of COVID. And uh, I think your oration has given us some really helpful pointers to where we need to be looking and what we need to, to continue building. So that takes us to the conclusion of this year's Helen Williams oration. I'd like again to express my gratitude to Helen for her exemplification of women in leadership and to Dr. Foley for presenting an excellent 2021 Helen Williams oration. I'd also like to thank IFA's partners for their ongoing support, Minta Ellison, of course, KPMG, Hayes, Telstra, the Commonwealth Bank of Australia and Microsoft. Thank you to you all for tuning in today. And on behalf of IFA ACT, we look forward to seeing you at future events. Thank you.